listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette, and I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. Season one of Superpower Curiosity is a deep dive into how to get beyond divisiveness and why we feel great when we do. To read all about this, check out Richard's recent book, It's a Freaking Mess, How to Thrive in Divisive Times. And speaking of his book, listen in at the end of the episode for details on how to get it on sale, just in time for the holidays. This is a special episode of Superpower Curiosity, featuring a discussion between Richard and a very special guest. Here's Richard. Thank you, Molly. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for today's podcast, Lester Strong. For the first 25 years of his illustrious career, Lester was an award-winning TV journalist and executive in Atlanta, Charlotte, New York City, and Boston. In Boston, Lester became the daily news anchor for WHDH-TV. He also became the TV reporter on health. And for this, he was given the William A. Hinton Award by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health for, quotes, outstanding individuals who have significantly contributed to educating the public on health and medical issues. Lester also served as vice president of AARP Foundation's Experience Corps, a tutoring mentoring program which serves 30,000 elementary school students annually who struggle with reading nationwide. Lester is now the executive director of the Peaceful Guardians Project, which serves as a communication and conflict resolution bridge between law enforcement and communities of color. Lester was the lead coordinator for the City of Kingston's Re-Envision Public Safety Task Force, as mandated by New York Governor Cuomo in the wake of the George Floyd killing in May 2020. And Lester also co-facilitates, I'm gonna say that again, Lester also co-facilitates an anti-racism workshop in New York's Hudson Valley entitled, How to Help Heal Racism in America. One of the things I admire about Lester is that he is focused on the humanity that lies within everyone, of every color, class, and political persuasion. Lester believes passionately that everyone, whatever their background, should have the benefit of enjoying self-esteem and self-respect. So welcome, Lester. Richard, thank you. Thank you so much. It feels good to be here. Thank you. That, that, that feels good to me too. So I'm welcoming you to the uh, the Curiosity Room. Uh, <laughs> I like that name. That's really cl- <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, um, Lester, I, I'd like to start with your experience as Vice President of AARP's Foundations Experience Corps, and 
I understand uh, from what I've read that this is a tutoring and mentoring program, as I said, um, and it serves um, 30,000 elementary school students who are struggling with reading. Um, so my question, first question to you is, uh, what, did, what did you learn from this yourself? Well, I, I, a lot of things, Richard, a lot of things. I think that one of the big uh, things that I learned is that, that um, while intelligence is important and critical and, and those supports to education are important, um, what is vital is a healthy sense of self, a healthy right. sense of uh, worthiness yes. uh, for people. Um, and my experience was that for many of these uh, youngsters that we were working with, while they certainly had deficits, academic deficits, no question about that, what came with that deficit was this sense that maybe I'm not good enough anyway, that right. maybe I'm not capable of doing this. Yes. And, and as such, I would give up a, a, a colleague of mine uh, uh, by the name of Ralph Smith, who uh, he said, many of these children, while uh, they may leave school in the ninth grade yes. or 10th grade, when they're legally able, they really have dropped out in fourth grade. And the reason for that was that their sense of possibility, their sense of agency, their sense of being able to really accomplish the things that they wanted to accomplish through academics simply was lost at a very, very early age for a variety of reasons that we can go into later. But, but yeah. it was so demoralizing for so many of these young people that they basically just gave up. And that was the hard work. And to, to experience course credit, we had over 2,000 uh, older volunteers. And to those volunteers' credit, that's what they really gave these young people, I think, more than just the kind of mechanics of reading and, yeah. and writing. It was that, this sense that I believe in you. And I think that made all the difference in the world. That is wonderful to hear, Lester. I'm thinking now of the um, Gardner's uh, seven, or it later became nine intelligences, and how, yeah, I'm sure you're familiar with this, and, and how it, in school, what is measured usually is uh, mathematical intelligence and linguistic intelligence, uh, which includes reading, and uh, no attention is paid, or very little, to spatial intelligence, to kinesthetic intelligence, the kind of intelligence of, you know, of knowing where your body is in space, and and to um, musical intelligence and and uh, spiritual intelligence and ecological intelligence and and the, the the whole list of them. And and so so because those things are not measured, then I, I'm ag I'm agreeing with you. Then people feel. Uh, so bad if their intelligence is in a different area from, let's say, the, the commonly measured intelligence. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Richard. And, and you know this, that there is this uh, metric of IQ and then there is the metric of EQ, 
which is emotional intelligence. Yes. And uh, yes. what researchers are really beginning to understand and discover is that emotional intelligence is at least equal to uh, intellectual intelligence because without the ability, uh, without resilience and, yeah. and uh, sharing and socialization and so many other qualities that relate to interacting and exchanging with other human beings, you just can't do it. You just yes. can't do it. Yes. So, uh, so uh, I, I believe that a lot of these statistics on this show that um, people with emotional intelligence are the people who tend to become uh, successful by many different measures of, of success. And the people who only have a very narrow academic intelligence in, in maths and language, mostly, um, it's not particularly correlated with success, and, you know, to, to the surprise of many researchers. I, I'm, sitting on, I'm sitting on a board of an organization called Eye to Eye, and they work with uh, young people who have learning differences, whether it's dyslexia or ADHD, and, yeah. and what they really inculcate in these young people is this sense of uh, agency, that I yeah. can do this, even though my, my pathway, my learning pathway may be very different. Yes. But there's nothing that can keep me from really learning uh, if I apply uh, different kind of skill sets uh, to do it. So uh, it's just, you yeah. know, and I'll, I'll, end, I'll stop with one other quote from uh, Benjamin Mays. Benny okay. Mays was the uh, president of Morehouse College when Dr. King was there. He was uh -huh. a mentor to Dr. King. And he really, uh, if you know anything about Morehouse, it really is kind of one of those shining lights on the hill yes. uh, in the HBCU uh, network. And he said, uh, Say what the HBCU stands for. Historically black universities and colleges and universities okay. uh, in the United States. Yes. And he said, you know, the real tragedy in life is not to fail to achieve your dreams. The real tragedy in life is having no dreams at all. Wow. And in fact, that's what we have all too often seen with our young people is yes. that they, they've given up, they've become so demoralized that they don't even dream anymore. And, oh and our job, really, in a very direct and immediate way, is to hold those dreams for those children until they can hold them for themselves. That's our work. Well, Lester, that, I, I have tingles going through my body when, when you say that, because the thought of people not having a dream is... is Kind of awful, yeah, and, and it, it just—it's very, very sad. So, so important that people have a dream. So yeah. important, yeah. yeah. I agree, and I'm thinking also of what you were saying about uh, self-esteem, and uh, and and that that brings me to a whole another question. Um, uh, in the in my last podcast. I had read an excerpt from my book from, from chapter four, and it was titled The Tyrannosaurus in the Room. And as you know, that, that referred to the, the human ego. 
Uh, you, you know that because you read you read my book, <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know the human ego being that part of us that that uh, makes it possible for ninety percent of us to think that we are better drivers than average. And in a, in an early uh, version of my book, I I had presented the ego mostly as kind of puffing ourselves up, feeling superior. Uh, dissing other people as less than, otherizing those we considered inferior. And you had a, a comment on this, uh, which turned out to be very valuable for my book. So <laughs> do you want to speak speak to that? Wow. Wow, Richard, you're giving me too much credit. Um, I, I think that the whole, I, I'm trying to really get my head back around it. Um, for me, self-esteem is, is not just, you were going to say something, Richard? No, I, I was going to say that, that the, one of the, one of the things you said to me when you saw that chapter, uh, is that, um, is that I'd been speaking of the ego as, as a stance of mostly superiority and and you said that you you didn't disagree with that 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 of, of course that's that's part of what the ego, and and what you said was that that where you struggle is that you, in that you didn't see any consideration for those whose, uh, how can I say it, normal ego development has been um, damaged by people and institutions that have made them and generations before them feel inferior. Yeah, and that yeah. was the point that that yeah. really got through to me. Well, and again, I I say you give me too much credit. I think that the one who really deserves credit for that is Nelson Mandela, uh, who really said that it's not um, our inferiority that we're afraid of; it's our greatness. And what I what I took from that was that uh, we are comfortable with being small, and what has happened is that. For many of us, we kind of go along with this tyranny of low expectations. Yeah. And when teachers and, and others tell us that we can't accomplish, that what happens, unfortunately, is that we actually believe it. Yeah. And when we believe that, then there's nowhere to go. There's yeah. no, no opportunity and yeah. there's no way to even try because we don't feel that we are capable of that. And yes. all of this is, of course, tied to identity. Certainly yes. in here in the United States, race is a, you know, a key factor, but it's yes. not just race. No. Um, it's, you know, where we live, it's whether we're in the North or the South or whether we have money or we don't have money. It's really how we wrap our sense of who we are. And yeah. when we wrap our sense of who we are with being less than, then, you know, the ball game's over. Ball game's yes. over. And as I said to you about the young people that we worked with, unfortunately, our hard work was helping them to understand and to appreciate that they are more than, than they thought they are. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I, I'm going to return to the broader point of, of identity. Um, and... I just want to mention before that a quote that you sent me in, in response to uh, 
this this uh, the book that I that I'd sent you, and uh, you sent me this quote from uh, Dr. King's Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Birmingham Jail, and this is the quote. I, I'm going to read it right now. Uh, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children. And you see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people. So you, you had sent me that. And I had actually read that about 20 years before and it brought tears to my eyes then. And when you sent it to me you know, 20 years later, which is a few months ago, um, I brought tears to my eyes again. It's just, it is so moving and heartrending, you know. It, it's the insidiousness of, of race and color in this country. You know, it's hard. I mean, um, there is this uh, great NBA basketball coach, and I don't know yeah. why I'm blanking on his name right now. He's the coach of the Philadelphia 76ers right now. But, uh, you know, after the uh, George Floyd shooting, you know, he said, you know, the real tragedy here is that most black people love America, but yeah. America does not love us back. Yeah. And, and that's, that's been the sad uh, elegy of, uh, of, of many black people in this country that that all that is wanted is a full and complete uh, participation in the democratic process in this yeah. country. And yet the systems yes. that have been created in this country um, based on racism um, simply will not allow it. And, oh, Richard, you're putting me on a soapbox here. I, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I don't want, I want, my my white brothers and sisters to understand that um, it's not about calling them racist. It's not about that. Right. It is that we are living in a culture where it is impossible to not be impacted by racism. Yes. Um, because of the way this is, it's like saying I've sw I swim in the Atlantic Ocean, but I'm not going to get wet. It's virtually impossible. Yes. So it is not about race, be you consciously or someone consciously being racist. It is uh, acquiescence to a system yeah. that is allowing these kind of behaviors to continue. And that's the hard work. That's where we have to really put in the time and effort to understand that not just consciously, but unconsciously, we are engaging in behaviors that are demeaning and otherizing to people. Yeah. So it means that we have to then create an internal system, a system for ourselves that really enables us, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, to ensure that we are treating others with great love and respect and humanity. 
because you cannot rely on an external, on the American external system to support that behavior. It simply is not there. Yes. So maybe, so maybe I can go ahead. make, a, make a, a distinction here between uh, the systemic changes that are needed and all the work of social justice to try and make that happen. And, and you know, you and I and everybody knows this is a, a huge thing and, and it's, it's going to take time and, and yet it's totally necessary. And then what you just mentioned is, is that each one of us individually can also make a change. And in doing that, we have to recognize our, our own tendency to prejudice. And, and we have to, each one of us has to recognize the, the importance of uh, uh, self-esteem and the difference between self-esteem and, and ego. And so I'm saying that because af after uh, you wrote to me and, and you sent me that quote from Martin Luther King, um, I added another two pages to, <laughs> to my chapter, <laughs> which is in, in my current book. Um, and that was basically on, okay, what is the difference between ego and self-esteem? And um, it, it's, I'm grateful to you because you really got me thinking about this. Um, and, uh, boiling it down, uh, what I came up with that self-esteem is how we feel about ourselves. Whereas ego is how we compare ourselves to others. Amen, brother. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think that the, 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 the cool thing is that, um, when, when you, when it boils down to it, and it's the point you've made too, is that those who think of themselves as superior, uh, whether that's superior because of skin color or uh, socioeconomic class or anything or hairstyle, <laughs> God knows what, right? Um, anyone, any of us who think of ourselves as superior uh, actually are suffering from low self-esteem because it's self-esteem that drives us to try and compensate by thinking we're better than somebody else. And uh, it, it's so paradoxical though, because the problem is the people, and I know you know this so well, the, the people who think of themselves as superior don't realize they have a lack of self-esteem. They just think they're better. And so it's so unconscious. And, and it's the unconsciousness of it that, that keeps it going and going and going without recognition of what's really happening. Which is what, why what the thought? systems are so, are so insidious is because the systems yes. prop up this illusion that you are better yes. because of, of a certain kind of preference and a certain kind of uh, acknowledgement that is given to you, even though you don't necessarily deserve it yes. uh, because it's artificial. So I, I'm with you, partner. I, I totally, yeah. I hear you loud and clear, and I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. So it, it got also got me thinking of, of you know, we, we're taught by, by our societies that, um, you know, better than, more than, less than, uh, and, and we are kind of put into groups of, 
groups of thinking groups of, okay, this group is less than, this group is more than, and this, this is how people are taught in probably in all societies. And we grow up with that. And how then do we find that core of self-esteem? Because once we have true self-esteem, then we do not need to compare ourselves with others. I, I, I sincerely believe that if we have full recognition of our soul strength, that prejudice is impossible. In other words, if, if, we, if we are fully immersed in, in our belief and our knowledge of our wonderfulness as a human being, then we do not need to compare ourselves with anybody else. So we do not need to put anybody else down and we do not need to be prejudiced. And I know that's, uh, it, that's high thinking if you like, <laughs> but I, I, I believe that. What, what, what are your thoughts? Oh, I totally agree with you. And I also agree that it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I, sure, I think, sure, sure. <laughs> I, I yeah. think that uh, <laughs> um, to, to find that space inside of you that says you're worthy when, when so many things around you are saying you're not enough yes. is really, really hard work. I, I'm yes. so grateful, so grateful to the people who, um, who were around me when the world was telling me that I wasn't enough reminded me that I was great. Uh, I think I've shared with you that in third grade, I was told that I was, uh, the term in, in, the, in my time was called mentally retarded. I was mentally deficient and that I, my parents were told never to what? expect, never to expect this child to graduate. Uh, the best you can do is find a menial job for him and hopefully he can live independently. So Lester, I did, I did not know this. Yes. So I'm shocked. You no. were told in fourth grade that you were mentally retarded? Yes, third grade. And third I was told grade. I was oh mentally retarded. And what was really disheartening about that was that my parents believed the authority figure of the teacher uh, because they said, well, she's the teacher. She must know. So oh my the God. assumption was that I was mentally retarded. But fortunately for me, Yes. There were three people in my neighborhood. There was a barber, uh, a Methodist minister, and the mother of a friend of mine who yeah. said, yes, you're incorrigible. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're a handful. But there's nothing wrong with your brain. Nothing right. wrong with your brain. So from third grade until I graduated from high school, they literally would read my homework, check my report cards call the school, and constantly, constantly, constantly tell me how much they believed in me. So you, so when you say they, you're talking about the, the barber, your mother's friend. Exactly. And, and the minister. Absolutely. And the, so you fast forward, you fast forward where I graduate second in my class. I'm a national merit scholar. I have uh, offers from Yale, Columbia, and Brown. I'm, I, I, you know, get a full scholarship to Davidson. This was, I was the disposable one as far as my teacher was concerned. And, and I'm not talking about Lester's accomplishments here. What I'm saying yeah. is that had those three people not seen something, yeah, 
that it probably would have been a self-fulfilling prophecy because my parents even believed it, you see. But that's right. what we are doing to so many of our children. Because of our low expectations of them, we're simply disposing yeah. of them. We don't worry about them. They're just yeah. collateral damage on our way to a great, great democracy. And what we don't realize is that we're, we're stifling the lives of millions of children. Now, think about this. This, I was, this was 50, over 50 years ago that I had this experience. Yes. And this very same experience is happening to children right now. Yes. Right now. So we haven't, we haven't sufficiently, some of us have learned, but we largely have not sufficiently learned of the, of the quality and the merit of people um, who are different from us. Yeah. And we as a society are suffering great, great emotional, moral, and even economic deficits because of it. Wow, Lester, I mean, hearing that is very moving to me. It's, uh, yeah. I did not know that, that, about that in, in, your, in your history. Wow. But your point that, that this is still happening today to millions of people is, is a staggering point. Well, that's why the Experience Corps, the, the tutoring and mentoring program was so passionate for me because I could see myself in those young people. I could see the light that went out of their eyes and yeah. the light that came on when they saw someone who believed in them. And that yeah. really is what it took was someone to believe. In. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of, of the um, general point that, that we get enticed into a, a make-believe world in which there are imaginary clubs of inferior and superior people. And it's, it's all imaginary, yeah. but it's very, very powerful. And I think that's your point. Um, and most of us, you know, we get taught that we're, we're in these clubs, that, that this is who we are. This is our identity. Um, and then when we believe we're in this club, this inferior club or this superior club, then it is very hard to get out of that. It, it, is, it really is. I'm, I'm, I'm taking your point here. Uh, it is not easy at all. It's easy to say, for me to say it right now, that we're in these clubs. But when you're actually in it, it is really hard to, to get out of it. And they're not all pretty clubs, that's for sure. They I are mean, certainly not. You, yeah. you know that I'm playing with, a, with an idea around belonging. And yes. that's the whole point, is that there is, I mean, we all want to belong. We all want to feel connected to yeah. some community or some person. And yet, if we are not connected to ourselves, if we don't have sufficient resources to understand, appreciate, and value just who we are by, by ourselves, then you'll never belong because yeah. you're always looking, comparison, comparing, uh, determining your value by someone else's comments or thoughts or judgments. Yeah. So as long as we are doing that, we really don't belong because we don't belong to ourselves. 
And we're yeah. simply ping-ponging between one tribe or one club after another, after another. Frankly, I think that's what we're seeing in our country right now. Yes. Is that uh, we're, we're being forced to pick a side. Yes. And in being forced to pick that side, we're not always comfortable there. But we compromise and contort who we really are to fit into one of these clubs or one of these tribes. And it's, it's killing us. It is yes. actually killing us. Yes. For me, Richard, the antidote to that is what I call a values intention. Okay. Because, like I said, all of us, regardless of your color, have been conditioned by uh, racism in America. We have. We, we, I, I think all of the research and the data really support that fact. So the question is, then how do you, you know, function in this culture and in this society in a humane way, in a way that is right and comfortable for you? And for that, uh, I have what I call intentional values. And intentional values is number one, intention, as you know very well, is really not how you want the world to be, but it's how you want to be in the world, how you choose to comport yourself in the world. It's Gandhi's be the change that you want to see in the world. So that's intention. And then the values. What I've done is that I've identified three values Mm -hmm. that uh, for me should encompass any circumstance, any situation that I'm in and that I should be able to call upon these values no matter what's happening. And those values are number one, unconditional love. Mm -hmm. Number two is patience. And number three is enthusiasm. Right. Unconditional love is almost an oxymoron because you can't love unless it's unconditional. Um, But a great teacher once told me that love has three essential components. One is wanting the best for someone, a willingness to make sacrifices in order to achieve the best for that someone and for yourself. And third is to ask for nothing in return. So to respond out of that place of unconditional love, I think, is critical in whatever situation I'm in. Second is patience. And with patience, I associate with compassion because it means I've got to listen. I've got to put myself in your shoes rather than reflexively simply responding to Uh, whatever you're saying, but actually take it in and understand it and appreciate it before I respond. And then third is enthusiasm. And I love this one because what it it says is that I want to take that which brings me passion and joy Mm -hmm. and I want to share it with other people. Right. Because that's really the greatest joy. And the greatest joy is to really share that which I love. So if I can do those three things, whether I'm, I'm talking to Richard Gillette <laughs> on a podcast or whether I'm in a, in a grocery store, then I literally am at peace with myself. 
uh, because I'm living the life that I want to live. And that's been my rudder through these, uh, these amazing uh, tumultuous times that we're living in. Thank you, Lester. That leads me to a question with regard to, okay, let's say, and before I ask you this question, I know you have a lot of experience with this because you have been working with young people for a long time. Let's say you're with somebody who has a very low opinion of themselves and inculcated, as we've talked about, by society, perhaps by family and, and so on. And uh, how do you get them from that place where they are thinking lowly of themselves and don't maybe don't have a dream about life? How do you get them from there to a place of even wanting unconditional love, patience, and enthusiasm? Uh, any thoughts about the steps to get from one to the other? Because, yeah. of course, I, I, you know that I'm going to love your goal. I do. And the, the question is, yeah, how do we do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any thoughts? Yeah. Well, I think that I, I think the patience portion is is really what leads in 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 that situation. And that patience portion is really not telling but asking. And it's not it, it's about listening. It's about meeting people where they are. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 about not having um, uh, having any any uh, ownership of the outcome. In other words, you don't know what the outcome will be. This person may fully reject you. Okay. They might say, I don't want you around me. But at the same token, you will be there. And you're going to, that patience is that, all right, um, whatever I can do, whatever small, small thing I can do, that will make your circumstance a little bit better. I'm going okay. to do it. I'm not going to impose, but I'm going to I'm going to witness. I'm going to be here for you if you if you'll allow me. So let me home in on, on that for a little okay. while. Okay. So let's say you have somebody who's who's angry. They're angry because uh, they feel like society is against them, um, and it's a very understandable anger. And they're thinking, why the hell should I listen to anybody? Look what these assholes have done. Look what these people have done to my kind of people. I don't want to listen to anybody. Don't tell me what to do. I'm angry. How do you, how do you help someone like that? Um, and, you know, of course, we all get into that place at, at, at times. Uh, how do we get from there to patients, to even wanting to listen to what someone else has to say? Well, a, a very wise teacher once said to me, Richard, uh, yes. someone has to want you to help them before you can really help them. So, right. so my position will be, I'm here. Arms are open. I'm open and receptive. Yeah. Um, and even if it's a small, small thing, let's get a Coke 
let's, you right. know, let's do some, it's not about changing. Um, I'm not, I'm not coming in on a, on a white horse to save you. Yeah. I'm saying that I love you just because I love you. Not because you have to do anything. Right. For me to love you. I just love you. So what can I do to help, man? So what I'm hearing in that is, is that, um, first step for, this is for you, for you or for me or for anybody else, uh, who is in the position of teacher, the first thing is acceptance of somebody else as they are now, just full acceptance of their personhood and not trying to make them into something else. Yeah. I think the, the first step is really coming as another human being to another yep. human being and saying, yep. you know, uh, I'm here in the classes that uh, that we teach, um, we say that this is a collective where we are teaching each other. Right. Uh, so I'm going to learn as much from you as I hope you learn from me. Yes. So so let's let's really make sure that we're at that place where we just have kind of mutual um, acknowledgement, respect for one another. And if we get to that place, even that is an accomplishment. Yes. So what I, so what I'm hearing that uh, there is that on the it's it's a paradoxical thing because in the classroom your position, so to speak, is as teacher. However, in terms of the um, interpersonal relationship between you and the student you are not putting yourself in that psychological position of teacher. You are putting yourself as a, as a learner. Exactly. And, and in fact, I don't even call myself a teacher. I call myself right. a facilitator. Good. Because, Good. Um, as I said, you, we collectively are the teacher. We're bringing our collective wisdom to yeah. this issue, to this question. And through our collective wisdom, each of us, may find very different answers to where who we are and what we're doing. So yeah. let's just, in a space of trust and respect, really try to offer whatever we can to each other and see what comes out. Right. And that requires some humility. Absolutely. So we're not, no one's saying, I know the answer to this. Where we- There you go. Uh, whoever, whoever is uh, supposedly teacher, and, uh, everyone is teaching and learning basically at the same time. Yeah. And, and the humility is recognizing that. Yeah. And, and what we do as facilitators is that we say, okay, so here's some, uh, some really amazing data, or here's some really smart people who have studied this issue who say this, so we'll use yes. that as grist for the conversation, but let's yes. let's see where it takes us. So that's what we do. Yes, yeah. So it, it's really interesting because th this is, a, I think, a really key point because you are bringing in information from, uh, well, in quotations or the grist, whatever you're using as grist for the mill, and at the same time, the stance is, 
I'm not saying this is the truth. I'm saying let's look at this and let's see where we go with this. Yeah. What do you people, think? Uh, anyone is totally free to reject yes. anything that we've brought into the room because yeah. we're not saying that this is, quote, the truth. We're just yes. saying this is a point of view. And yeah. from that point of view, does it really uh, resonate with you? Or does it inspire something else in you uh, that is totally contrary? And that's okay. Bring it up, yeah. you know, because inquiry is really the teacher here. Yes. And that's really what we're acknowledging and honoring in this process. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, you, you were executive director of the, I think you still are, executive director of the Peaceful Guardians Project. I sure am. Yeah. You sure are. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and that, that serves as a uh, communication and conflict resolution bridge between law enforcement and communities of color, as I, as I understand it. You got it right. Um, so, uh, in what ways do you think you were able to to help with any enforcement, uh, law enforcement beliefs or prejudices? Were there ways in which you were able to help with that? Well, we're still working at it. Um, sure. I think that uh, we've been working with the Kingston Police Department and with the city of Kingston. Yeah. Um, and one of the places where I, I have really enjoyed working with the police officers is what we call wellness kind of a wellness training program. Right. And why that was so gratifying is that it's not just about physical exercise and that sort of thing, but it's also understanding that if your mind isn't right, then your body's not going to be right. There is truly a mind-body connection uh, to everything that we do. So yeah. in addition to teaching them meditation and yoga and that sort of thing, we also said, so what does anger look like for you? What does love look like for you? Right. Uh, what makes you scared? Um, how do you find your purpose in your life? Um, how do you deal with, with conflict? So in wrestling with these questions that we all have, yeah. and as, this, as I said, bringing in information about how others have done it, what we were able to do through conversation is really identify some real useful tools that, uh, that these individuals really, I think, um, have found helpful. One uh, comes from, uh, you probably know, um, Don Miguel Ruiz, uh, the four agreements. Yes. And there's yes, the yes. first agreement is to make your words impeccable. And what we really focus on is uh, is really making sure that you understand that this is one of the most valuable tools you have, is how you speak and how you accept what's being said. And what it did was give them very, very specific tools to then uh, use in whatever situation, when, when somebody, when they're on the street and somebody's screaming and hollering at them for whatever reason, because Let's face it, police officers aren't the most welcome people in the neighborhood, especially when there's a problem, uh, that they can process that. They have now tools to process that and then respond in a, in a more useful way. So those are the kind of things that, that we've done that I, I'm really, really gratified about.
Sounds great. Uh, I, I'm just picking up on one of the things you mentioned was the asking that question, what does anger look like for you? Or what does, what does fear look like for you? And it strikes me that it's so valuable because where fear and anger go wrong, um, and I don't need to say this to you, I know, um, is when we're unconscious of them and they just take over our being. And that leads to, to violence and to, uh, and then that creates more fear and more anger. And, and so you have this terrible vicious cycle. So even just the recognition of when we're in those states can help us look at ourselves. And then in witnessing ourselves in that state, we can actually move into a different state. We have, we have a choice then. Whereas we don't see it, we don't even have a choice anymore because we're just, we're just in it and we, we <laughs> react. <laughs> they, uh, it's, I, I like the term, the, the limbic hijack. Yeah. Where, where your, your whole system gets taken over by the limbic emotional circuitry in your brain. And you then, you know, we then lose our rationality. We, I mean, when I'm angry, I, I am not very smart. I, <laughs> I do things that I, that I regret because I uh, am using my limbic circuitry. And in those moments, the, the higher um, circuits in, in my forebrain are switched off. They really are. So recognition is really important. There you go. What we what in our class, what we do is that we we show a picture of a matador about to gore a bull. I mean, to stab a bull. Yes. And and uh, and we talk about that uh, as two aspects of what's going on: the anger, uh, which, by the way, is only fear because and the the common denominator between anger and fear is threat so the reason why this bull is attacking a white uh, a red cape is because it feels threatened yeah but of course the other side of it is the matador who's waving the red cape and has the sword about to kill the bull so the point that we make in the class is that you have to be not that you have to be, but you are both the bull and the matador. In other words, we all get angry, we all yeah. get upset, but we also have to be the matador, which is to be in control and to manage the situation. So you have to find tools to really manage the situation so that the anger doesn't consume you and that you can successfully navigate it. So, amen, brother. I, you know, again, it's... <laughs> We're talking the same language. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yes. Well, let me let me Lester, let me ask you a personal question. Okay. Uh, can you say uh, one thing, big or small, that has changed for you personally as a result of your understanding the let's say the essential worthiness of every human being? So I'm um, asking you a personal question here. How, how yeah. has that changed? Your yeah, life. Yeah, and it has, totally has. And I think that's why I have the three intentional values that I shared with you. Mm -hmm. Because I know that I can otherize. I know that I can condemn and judge and do all of those things. I'm, I'm human, so I do them too. 
So my fail safe are those three values. Right. That's, that's, that's my North star. That's what I keep coming back to again and again and again, so that I understand that we're all susceptible to sure. this kind of behavior. And that's what I try to do. That's what I try yep. to do. Yeah. So that's the personal understand. And underneath all of that, of course, is the understanding and appreciation that that person is as worthy and, and magnificent uh, as I am. So that uh, anything that, you know, yeah. there's a great Iroquois uh, expression that says that everything that you do radiates out seven years. So whatever action that I take, I should understand that it's going to radiate out through generations for seven, for, excuse me, for seven generations. So let me um, be careful about what I say and do. Uh, and those three values, I tell you, those three values for me have been such a great uh, support uh, in, in navigating the craziness, uh, the freaking mess <laughs> that we live in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, you're just reminding me, I, I, I have a, I had, uh, and, and have in, in, in a different sense, a very good friend who, who died a few years ago. And he was three years, uh, three days before he died. Uh, this is what he told me. Um, he was dying of cancer. And he said, you know, if a nurse comes to me and I scowl at her, she's going to carry that scowl and take it to other people and it's going to spread. If a nurse comes to me and I smile at that nurse, that smile is going to go into her and it's going to go into all the other people in, in, in the hospice and and from there. And the fact that he said this three days before he died, uh, where, where you'd say, and he was in pain, where, where you'd think, of course he'd be scowling, uh, was just, it was very touching to me. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I take your point that, yes. Well, there was a, um, uh, I saw this in the classroom as well. Uh, young children that we would, who were who seemed just so lost and so hopeless yeah. uh, that we'd work with them, and they'd come back the following year, really just running and excited. And and what happened was what we called uh, the contagion of excellence. Uh, mm -hmm. What happened was because this young person that everybody had given up on really comes back and starts succeeding and is enthusiastic, he started affecting the children around him because they'd say, well, if Lester can, I mean, of, of all people, if Lester can do this, I can do it. And it would motivate them to, to think beyond uh, their limit, their limitations and go for it. And that's what happens. Every single thing that we do, you're right, Richard. Yeah, has its long-term effect. So we just yeah. got to watch it very closely. Yeah. Well, Esther, it's, it's so good talking to you. Likewise, partner. It's been great.
And I, I thank you for being so present and for sharing your really extensive experience, your extensive experience, both personally, which you've described so beautifully today, and your, your professional experience of helping so many people find their spark and their belief in themselves. Thank you so much. Well, That's strong. It's been a great joy. Thank you, Richard. So glad you could join us in the Curiosity Room on this episode of Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette, featuring Lester Strong. As promised, here are the details on the book sale. Richard's book, It's a Frickin' Mess, is on sale for 40% off now through Sunday, December 5th, 2021. So, if you're looking for holiday gifts for friends and family, now is a great time to pick up some copies and share the message of peace of mind in these divisive times. If you're local to upstate New York, you can stop by the RT store or the Hurleyville General Store to pick up your discounted copy. Otherwise, you can get the same discount worldwide on Amazon, including the ebook version. And did I mention it's 40% off? Yeah, okay. For details, there's a link to itsafreakinmess.com in the show notes. Stay tuned to this feed. Our next episode is scheduled to come out in two weeks. Protect yourself from divisive influence in the media. Till next time, stay curious. Stay curious.